0: Welcome back to the Low Tree Podcast, where we discuss all things related to Islamic philosophical and spiritual traditions. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at something really fundamental, and this is the Apology of Socrates. Now, you may be wondering what is the relationship between this text, Socrates, or Greek thought, and Islamic traditions? Well, history recalls that there is a lot to be shared between ancient Greek uh, philosophy and Islamic philosophy. In fact, Islamic philosophy grew out of the Greek tradition. Islam did not have a philosophy in and of itself. All we had was a holy book, we had a scripture, the Quran, and then we had say statements from the Prophet. And then after the Prophet, the saints carried on that tradition and different uh, disciplines emerged out of a single text or a single religious text. So philosophy was later introduced, particularly through the translation movement, when many of the Greek works were translated into Arabic. That being the case, uh, there is a profound influence of Greek thought into Islamic thought. And um, and for that reason, we, we need to go back and look at the original works and see the wisdom in the Greek uh, philosophical tradition. So today here with me, we have Mustafa Ali, philosophy buff, and uh, he will. we're going to have a nice discussion on this very critical text recorded by uh, Socrates' student Plato. Mustafa, can you tell us a little bit about this text?
1: Yes, so this is the Apology of Socrates, and it is not actually his apology, it is actually just his legal defense in court when the people of Athens, namely Anatus, Miletus, and Lycon, they accuse him of corrupting the youth and not believing in the gods of Athens, and for this they want to sentence him to death. And so we will see what the outcome is and how Socrates defends himself in the year 399 BC. Now, the Apology is really a, a phenomenal work.
0: It's It was recorded, and it has a lot of the Socratic themes
1: uh, in it. It's not just a legal defense, but it is also a philosophical treatise. And I would recommend that this would be one of the first dialogues to be read of Plato, um, just because it is short. It's only about 20 pages or so, and it really just summarizes all of Socrates and Plato's Ideology into one into one um, condensed and compact text. But before we begin, I'd just like to ask, for all our listeners who who haven't read any ancient or even any philosophical texts, why why is it important to read philosophical texts, specifically these which are over two thousand years old? Like, what does this have to do with us in the modern day? Philosophy
0: is a way of thinking about life. It's a way of looking into the world. And it helps a person to investigate the nature of reality. Even science is based on philosophy, because philosophy discusses first principles. Why do, we, why do scientists use experimentation or empiricism as a methodology to understand the world? Well, there's a philosophical reason behind this. They, it, it has to do with epistemology, how we know what we know. Epistemology is a branch of philosophy and it is the theory of knowledge. The other major branch is ontology, which is a theory of being. So philosophy is a, is a study to train the mind to think about things in a critical way, to deconstruct the world and to try to understand the meaning of things. This is the real aim of philosophy.
1: These Platonic dialogues, they also have a very common theme to any other philosophical text that one might encounter later on in their study. Even if the Islamic texts that you read later are a Islamified version, um, it seems almost as if this is the original, unadulterated work, um, which was the origin of it all. Exactly. I mean, you know, these three sages,
0: uh, Plato, uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle— among others, there was others, Pythagoras and Axagoras, and there's, you know, um, a whole tradition of Greek thought has permeated Western and Eastern thought to such a degree that it's, it's almost impossible to say that uh, these traditions do not owe so much to, to the Greeks.
1: The Eastern and the Western tradition alike, I think they're both heavily dependent upon, upon Greek philosophy. Right, exactly. I mean, just take logic, for example. You know, If it wasn't for
0: Aristotle, we wouldn't have logic. Uh, Maybe some of the principles of logic, but he's the founder of logic, and he really set down those principles that we use today or we take for granted today. Right.
1: So should we get into the actual text now?
0: Yeah, let's do it. All right. Okay, so why don't you read the first section and we can sort of see what's going on here.
1: Okay, so this is basically, it's just a monologue of Socrates is saying he's addressing the court so he says how you O Athenians have been affected by my accusers I cannot tell but I know that they almost made me forget who I was so persuasively did they speak and yet they have hardly uttered a word of truth well wow, what a powerful statement coming into this
0: into this uh, trial first of all Socrates b- being the philosopher that he is immediately distinguishes between true speech And false speech or speech which appears to be true but it is not it has hardly um, a word of truth in it so but it is nevertheless persuasive and this is something that he had fought against in his life which is the the sophists or people who used to uh, they were they were intelligent and they were debaters they used to argue points but for the sake of argument not necessarily to uncover or unveil truth and Socrates was vehemently against this, this use of eloquence and use this use of rhetoric. So he says how persuasive they are. They almost made me forget who I was. Whatever they spoke, they hardly uttered a word of truth. So he's negating the truth factor in from their speech. I just want to further drive home the point that Socrates is a seeker of truth. He's a lover of truth. And this is the mainstay of his whole, his whole mission in life is to understand the truth, to reveal it, and to teach it to others. And so here we have a, a, a major philosophical idea, which is that truth is something real and it can be known. There are other philosophical schools that believe that truth cannot be known, or reality cannot be known, so they are the skeptics. But he, Socrates is promoting the school of realism, or, um, or or the school which believes in in reality that there is such a thing as reality, and there is such a thing as truth, and that truth can be attained. So this this is a very critical facet of his whole way of being. Now, let's go to the next section.
1: So Socrates, he narrates that his friend Cherophon goes to the Oracle of Delphi, which was basically a prophetic figure who gave prophecies and, and was in touch with the gods of Athens. And so he says that he, that his friend Cherophon asks the Oracle who was the wisest person in Greece, and the oracle responded, "There was none wiser than Socrates. And when Socrates hears this, he's completely astounded because he claims that he is not wise even if everyone else thinks that he is. This is another interesting point.
0: On some level, uh, he, he knows he's wise, but he, but there's a subtlety here. He knows he's wise and he knows he has wisdom. However, his wisdom... Is not a dead end there is and there's a point where he knows that there is something which uh, which is greater than himself which is the wisdom of God and that his wisdom in compares in comparison to God's wisdom is non-existent so for this reason he says that his wisdom is not really wisdom or that he
1: he is not truly wise. He says in relation to this, but the truth is, O men of Athens, that God only is wise, and by his answer he intends to show that the wisdom of men is worth little or nothing. He is not speaking of Socrates, he is only using my name by way of illustration, as if he said, He, O men, is the wisest who, like Socrates, knows that his wisdom is in truth worth nothing. And so I go about the world obedient to the God. And search and make inquiry into the wisdom of anyone whether citizen or stranger who appears to be wise and if he is not wise then in vindication of the oracle i show him that he is not wise and my occupation quite absorbs me and i have no time to give either to any public matter of interest or to any concern of my own but i am in utter poverty by reason of my devotion to the god
0: so this is another interesting point to see that at least the the text that we have in front of us, uh, the translation of the Apology, we see that Socrates is a believer of God um, and that only God, he attributes wisdom to God, to this God. This is a wise God. That's the second point. And the third point is that he believes that he has been given, he has been given wisdom by God and been given a mission
1: by God. And we'll, I think we'll see that later on in the text where... his His mission, I think, is to... Um, He goes around um, around Athens inquiring about, is there anyone who is wiser than me? Just almost as if to, to test the Oracle, to test this prophecy, to see, is it actually true? Am I the wisest? Because he's almost in disbelief. Well, there's that. And also the fact that, remember, Socrates is the ultimate deconstructionist.
0: He is he is not trying to pick a fight and argue with people just for the sake of it. That's that's sophistry. He's against that. He's trying to show people that there is something beyond what you think and what you believe, the beliefs that you hold about life. There is something beyond that. And in order to reach that place and to reach higher truths, you must deconstruct the truth that you believe in now. And there's a, so this is the Socratic method. It's the way of breaking down uh, fallacies. We all hold fallacies. We all hold erroneous beliefs, whether it's our religious beliefs, our philosophical beliefs, our cultural um, beliefs about ourself. These are all beliefs that we hold. And to a certain extent, we have to have beliefs. The world resides and is founded on beliefs. So, however, that being the case, not every belief that we hold is correct. In fact, Maybe we, on, you know, we can say that most of the beliefs that we hold are incorrect, erroneous,
1: or flawed or incomplete. I think especially that has to do with our belief in our own, in our own wisdom, in our own knowledge. I think he, Socrates, also he just wants to test people's to test see how big people's egos are. He he goes around and he sees that okay, this politician, he thinks, he thinks he's wise. In reality, he's not only ignorant about what really matters, um, but he's also, he also thinks that he knows. So he's, he has compound ignorance. And that's another reason why Socrates um, sees that, okay, he, he must be wiser than, than um, the other person. So he says, I'm better off than he is, for he knows nothing and thinks that he knows. I neither know nor think that I know interesting. so in this in this regard, Socrates is acting like
0: like a spiritual mentor, a sheikh or a spiritual preceptor who trains disciples. Now the biggest problem with the disciple is the illusion of knowledge and, and, and the ego is the illusion of the self. And the the major work of the spiritual preceptor, is to remove the illusion from the person. We are all uh, in illusion or deluded. Uh, there's many ways to describe it. We're veiled from the truth, and the the, the teacher cannot rip the veil off all and all at once, because this will this might destroy the person. So he needs to do so in stages, and part of that is to engage in a dialectic to slowly expose the fallacious ways of thinking the false beliefs and ideas which are preventing
1: you from spiritual progress I think that's a really important point because Socrates the reason people dislike Socrates is I think he he tends to just rip the bandage off Um, so he says what is their hatred but a proof that I am speaking the truth the reason he's he's speaking he's speaking too much truth. People aren't really they can't handle um, the level of truth that he's speaking. They can't handle their own hurt egos, and that's one of the reasons they that is probably the main reason that they accuse Socrates of corrupting the youth. They accuse him of not of these false accusations just so they can get rid of him and they can save their own egos and go back to sleep, as he says. He's he's exposing
0: falsehood. He's exposing people and their falsehoods if you go around exposing people or you go exposing politicians and exposing uh, people in power they will crush you they will they will fight you there is no way that you can go around in the world and expose truth to such a degree there's only so much truth you can expose and so much truth you can speak that people will tolerate the world is built on lies. The media, everything is 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 built on different varying degrees of lies. There's no such thing as absolute truth in this world. So the Gnostic or the philosopher comes, uh, or a prophet, for example. The the whole objective of, of prophet of the prophet is to bring real truth. And so there was never a prophet in the history of the world who was not opposed by his people or some people amongst his people he had followers but he also had a lot of enemies and similarly socrates has made tons of enemies the people who love him are his students people who want to learn the truth and young people whose natures is still pure and not corrupted open-minded they're open-minded they are willing to learn they're willing to change they know that they're they're humble and they're young so this is why he he was accused of corrupting the youth. Why didn't they say he's corrupting the adults? He's corrupting the politicians. He's corrupting uh families. No, the youth because the youth are still
1: in a place of learning and they are they have a purity uh, with them still. They're not completely entrenched in in society's falsehoods like you said. I think another thing Socrates was he's like you said he loved to just deconstruct people weren't there. They weren't ready to watch their own, their own uh, belief system crumble yet. And that is, that is a major reason for um, their accusations against him. Exactly. I mean, this is what spirituality is in a nutshell. It is,
0: it is the crumbling of your uh, false beliefs and I know this is a difficult concept to explain or to accept. We all think that we all, we have correct beliefs. Everyone does, and this is the problem. Every human being believes to certain ex- to a certain extent that they know, and their beliefs are correct. That their religion is correct. Their their way of life is correct. That what they're doing is correct.
1: I have a question. Mm-hmm. So, if Socrates, if he knew that people would react in such a way where they would hate him for exposing the truth, uh, so so if Socrates really wanted to teach the people, why would he, why would he go about this in such a way where people would reject him? He's on a mission. He's on a mission from God. He says, God, and this
0: is in the, in the Apology. He says, God orders me to fulfill the philosopher's mission
1: of searching into myself. And other men if I were to desert my post through fear of death or any other fear that would indeed be strange and I might
0: justly be arraigned in court for denying the existence of the gods if I disobeyed the
1: Oracle because I was afraid of death for the fear of death is indeed the pretense of wisdom and not real wisdom right let's go back to this first sentence he says God orders me to fulfill the philosophers mission this is he's on he's on a mission so what exactly is the philosopher's mission in relation to philosophers in general not simply socrates i think that this is a diff- this is a special case that he he is
0: it's called the philosopher's mission and this is the translation um but really if he's being ordered by god this is a prophetic kind of designation or assignment philosophy is just Um, a methodology that any human being can engage in, which helps them to discover reality. It's using the intellect as a tool. What Socrates is doing is something a little bit different. He's using the intellect, but there is a spiritual backdrop. There is a divine element here, and this is very prophetic. All the prophets, they didn't just declare themselves prophets because they had knowledge, or they came, they stumbled upon some truth. No, they were appointed. The whole idea of prophecy is that they are divinely appointed. God speaks to them. They have revelation. And they are informed that they are prophets of God, whether it's Jesus or Muhammad or Abraham or any of the prophets, peace be upon them all, that they were assigned a duty. And so this is sort of what we're seeing here in this case. At least this is what we... Um, can understand from his words God orders me to fulfill this mission into searching myself and other men. It's very interesting how he says
1: searching into myself. I think that also links later on in the text he says, I think the the famous line the unexamined life is not worth living Right. I mean this is this is really his uh, the mission is that to to examine the
0: self, examine life and through this, you understand what why you are here what is the reason for your
1: for your living and what is you know what is the point of it all really and he he also criticizes what other people namely the politicians and just the these the mighty and the wise people of Athens what they valued they value honor they value money similar to our society today so he says you my friend Citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens Are you not ashamed of heaping up the greatest amount of money and honor and reputation and caring so little about wisdom and truth? And the greatest improvement of the soul which you never regard or heed at all
0: Yeah, there you go the improvement of the of, of the soul wisdom Truth virtue and, and virtue and improvement of the soul. This is what it's all about Looking a few, few a few lines down, he says, For I for know that this is the command of God. And I believe that no greater good has ever happened in the state than my service to God. Nothing better has happened in the state, in the land, than Socrates being appointed by God to teach humanity, to bring them out of ignorance, bring them out of vice, into virtue bring them away from heedlessness and worldliness, materialism, and bring them into godliness, piety, and other such virtues. So he says, look, this is my teaching, for I do nothing but go about persuading you all, old and young alike, not to take thought for your persons or your properties, but first and chiefly to care about the greatest improvement of the soul. So he is the spiritual master. He's His objective, and this is what a a sheikh or a master does. This is his objective. It is not to start a cult. It is not to start uh, an organization. It is to find souls receptive to teaching so that he may impart spiritual truths. He may safeguard wisdom in those souls. And he can train them and teach them in, in the way of God. He says this is my teaching
1: and if this is the doctrine which corrupts the youth then I'm a mischievous person that is the highest pursuit I mean he's willing to die for this he says um, understand that I shall never alter my ways not even if I have to die many times look at the conviction he has I mean this is amazing he has such conviction that that
0: this this conviction cannot be from just you know it may arise from the self just alone but there is a spiritual backing here
1: and we know from we just a few lines that we just read and he also he he knows that besides the few few people who are accusing him of corrupting the youth um, the vast majority um, of his students are there and he has a huge huge audience of over 500 people in this court and a lot of them do support Socrates they see that they know deep down that what he's saying is what he's saying is true even if they even if they hate it
0: exactly and
1: what, what was the vote it was quite close I think um, it's not exactly certain but I think Diogenes he accounted that 280 um, were against him versus 220 who were for him that's still pretty that's very that, close. Is, that is very close
0: that's very close um, all things considered um, and now look at the at the very end he says I would have you know that if you kill such a one as as me you will injure yourselves more than you will injure me. Nothing will injure me. Imagine that. He, he is not, for a bad man is not permitted to injure a better than himself. Nothing can injure him. He, he will die a martyr. He was 70 when he, or something like that. He was in, in his 70s when, when he was taken to trial. So, what is the point of
1: taking a 70 year old man to trial? You know, he says that, um, where, where does he say that? It, he says, if you gave me some more time, I would have gone anyways. They're just bringing injustice upon themselves by killing Socrates. He admits that himself. He knows that he doesn't have much longer to live. He's an old man at this point. Yeah. He says, And now, Athenians, I am not going to argue for my own sake,
0: as you may think, but for yours, that you may not sin against God by condemning me, who is, who am his gift to you. For if you kill me, you will not easily find a successor to me. Uh, that's some heavy words he says he's not concerned about life he's lived his life he's done his duty his mission and when he if is killed he dies a martyr but the sin will be upon the people the sin will be on the community that that went against him did not support him and they killed a righteous man then they will be condemned for his for his murder and you will not easily find a successor to me.
1: He says, he says, when I say that I'm given to you by God, the proof of my mission is this. If I had been like other men, I should not have neglected all my own concerns and patiently seen the neglect of them during all these years, and have been doing yours, coming to you individually, like a father or elder brother, exhorting you to regard virtue. Such conduct, I say, would be unlike human nature. If I had gained anything, or if my exhortations had been paid, there would have been some sense in my doing so. But now, as you will perceive, not even the impudence of my accusers dares to say that I have ever exacted or sought pay of anyone. Of that they have no witness. And I have sufficient witness to the truth of what I am saying, and that is my poverty. So he's saying that, look, he has done this for the benefit of the people, and
0: like a father, a brother, exhorting them, to regard virtue and righteous conduct. This is not normal conduct of human beings. Most people are concerned with their own self-interest to earn a livelihood, support their own family, to live in peace and happiness, and and most of all, I mean, to gather and amass wealth. Very few people truly sacrifice their own happiness or their own comfort for the betterment and well-being of others and the true well-being is a person's spiritual well-being true well-being and true wealth is to enrich another person spiritually emotionally mentally intellectually if you can you can give them wealth but that wealth is is only for this world it's only transient true wealth is the wealth of the soul wealth of the heart and the, and the intellect and this is the mission that he is on and we can see that this is very clear from from his words and this this concords with you know the re- all religious traditions the the mission of you know uh, Buddha or, or or Jesus or the prophet or prophet Muhammad or any of the prophetic figures in history any of the sages This is exactly what they did and verbatim to a T
1: I think this is a very interesting part he he talks about a voice which comes into his head and tells him it tells him what not to do it never tells him what to do it it, he says "Um, you have heard me speak at sundry times and in diverse places of an oracle or sign which comes to me and is the divinity which Miletus ridicules in the indictment this sign which is a kind of voice first began to come to me when i was a child it always forbids me but never commands me to do anything which i'm going to do now this sounds sounds very much like like revelation or if not revelation then inspiration i think especially if you're looking at it from from an islamic standpoint
0: i mean there's no question in my mind if i read this document and if this is true from what we have received you know several thousand years later then it's clear to me that he was a gnostic it is clear to me that he received from god directly or through some signs through revelation through inspiration there's many different levels of of this type of inward spiritual knowledge and we'll discuss this more in later podcasts on the divisions of unveiling the types of uh, of of the types and ways of receiving understanding So here we have a spiritual mode of receiving knowledge. So not only was Socrates a wise person, a sage, but he was also a Gnostic. Not every sage is a Gnostic and not every Gnostic is a sage. But here we have the combination of both sage and Gnostic. So you can imagine this great and lofty station with God. And here he says... It always forbids but never commands me to do anything which I'm going to do. This is interesting because whatever he says in the apology,
1: had there been any falsehood, he would have been commanded by the oracle or forbidden by the oracle. And he admits this at the end. He says, nothing which I have said, I have been forbidden by the oracle or the voice. So it just affirms that he knows what he's saying is true. He has serious conviction. And that's why I think he's he speaks about death he speaks openly about how he's not afraid of it and i think that's the most powerful thing that he can do in this situation okay there's one last thing i want to
0: talk about and this has to do with this idea when socrates says that i'm not wise now this is a actually a very uh, subtle and deep philosophical point it's not only that, as we mentioned earlier, that Socrates believes that his wisdom is insignificant in in comparison to God's wisdom. But what he's referring to here is a station of knowledge or the place of no knowledge. Now, let me explain what that means. Now, knowledge and wisdom are two different things. Knowledge Comes before wisdom. A person may have great knowledge, but they may not have wisdom. Wisdom is sort of the fruit of knowledge. It is a higher plane of understanding. Someone who's wise is is more and has a greater scope and understanding of the world than someone who just has knowledge. And we'll we'll look into wisdom more in greater detail. However, this particular statement or this particular perspective that he had that he claims not to be wise. So when he says that he's not wise so from one perspective he's comparing this wisdom to the wisdom of God but from another perspective the wisdom that he's referring to when he says I'm not wise it means that I'm not the type of knowledgeable person I've transcended knowledge I don't have that kind of knowledge that you have. I'm I'm be, I've gone beyond that. And when a thing reaches its end point, it returns back to its beginning. So in, in a sense, this is the sort of the circularity of existence. And it has to do with the fact that when a person, it's, it's a realization when a person has reached the end point or the highest station of knowledge, he comes to realize he knows nothing. Similarly, a person who reaches the highest station of wisdom, he comes to realize that he has no wisdom. Because he's, he's lost in the ocean of wisdom. He no longer sees his own self-existence. And he sees that he is just a conduit for, for being, for God, to impart God's wisdom. In other words, he says that I'm not wise, God is wise. I have nothing. I am not even a thing that should have uh, existence. It is God that has sustained me and supported me in my whole existence. So my wisdom is really divine wisdom. In a way, it's saying that I don't have any wisdom. I have nothing. It's all I'm just a a means and a conduit for the greater and the higher being. So this is a very subtle point. It's a very high station. It's not like you you and I would say, that, oh, I don't have I don't know I don't have knowledge. It means we don't we. It's non being, as opposed to annihilation. There's a difference between non being and annihilation. Annihilation is being but being one with all being. So, for example, if you take a drop of water and you drop it into the ocean, that oh, that drop of water becomes annihilated. It doesn't go into non-existence. It becomes annihilated in the rest of the ocean.
1: It loses its own identity. Exactly.
0: It loses its own identity and becomes one with the rest of the world, it's, the rest of the universe. It's
1: not like It's not like its own drop of water. It's just the ocean. So it's like, socrates is not claiming wisdom or any of his wisdom to be his own he's claiming that his wisdom is God's wisdom or that he has no wisdom because his wisdom is God's wisdom
0: exactly so there's a oneness and this is a very subtle point that is um, maybe glossed over me maybe we, may, we may think that he's just being humble or that uh, he's trying to evade this uh, accusation or some other reason but i think the you know some of this the mystics have talked about this and, and this particular perspective of socrates uh, transcending or being one with divine wisdom
1: i think we should just just finish off the text there's a couple poignant points that we could we could talk about i think mainly it's just how he's ends up being sentenced to death and he Almost has no qualms about it at all. He he reflects out loud whether is death actually, is it a good thing? He, so he says, Let us reflect in another way and we shall see that there is a great reason to hope that death is good. For one of two things. Either death is a state of nothingness and utter unconsciousness, or as men say, there is a change and migration of the soul from this world to another. Now, if Now if you suppose that there is no consciousness, but asleep like the sleep of him who is undisturbed even by dreams, death will be an unspeakable gain.
0: So, Socrates is embracing the idea of death. He's saying that this is a change and a migration of the soul, and at worst, it is sleep, like the sleep of someone who's undisturbed. But we know that these are just musings. He is wholly embracing this, uh, this idea of, of martyrdom, and he says i am not angry with my condemners or with my accusers they have done me no harm although they did mean did not mean to do me any good and for this i may gently blame them
1: this quote also has to do with our idea of martyrdom he he says they've done me no harm they clearly have they clearly have sentenced him to death and he he accepts this and he almost rejoices in it perhaps he feels pride in knowing that I've done my duty and even if they have rejected me at least I've completed my mission in the in the best way I that I could
0: this is one thing and the other thing is also that the saintly person so this is as, as far as if we can describe the the, the personality of Socrates he's saintly uh, not just wise or a philosopher or a Gnostic this is saintliness and what is, the, what is the sign of that saintliness? It is to, to love your enemy. This is the saint who loves his enemy. He, he wishes his enemy, even his enemy, he wishes well. And he knows the enemy is only harming himself. He knows that divine punishment will come down to the enemy. But because of the mercy that he himself has, uh, feels for all of creation, including his enemy. he does not want his enemy to suffer on his account. So he tries he endeavors to forgive his enemy because the saint is a powerful thing if if a saint uh, wishes good for someone, then good will arrive to them. If he wishes evil for someone, then evil comes to them. and so the saint is careful not to curse not to create troubles even for the enemy. The saint is concerned with justice and mercy. Anything with, which exceeds justice is not in the realm of the saint. The saint is not vindictive. The saint is not looking for revenge. The saint is looking for justice. And if justice cannot be attained, then mercy. And he says, <clears throat> When my sons are grown up, I would ask you, O oh, my friends, to punish them. And I would have you trouble them, as I have troubled you. If they seem to care about riches, or anything more than about virtue, or if they pretend to be something when they are really nothing, then reprove them, as I have reproved you, for not caring about that for which they ought to care, and thinking that they are something when they are really nothing. And if you do this, both I and my sons will have received justice at your hands
1: the hour of departure has arrived and we go our ways I to die and you to live which is better God only knows
0: these are the last words before he was taken to the prison cell
1: I think there's also a a contrast between in the beginning of the text he might have said which is better I don't know now he says which is better God only knows
0: I think that um, his saintly character he knew all along probably
1: but there's also a development in in kind of the way he was speaking across this text from the beginning he was speaking more from a, a personal level and it slowly developed into more of a, an, a a prophetic level I think especially after they after they condemned him to death because in the beginning he didn't know he, whether he would whether he would be sentenced to death or a fine. And he originally tried to get out of it. And, and so now that he was condemned to death, his, uh, his tone changed a little bit.
0: But also remember, spiritual people often know their time has arrived. Spiritual people have an awareness. They're given signs. He says, uh, look, um, you know, the, the oracle made no sign of opposition, either when I was leaving my house in the morning or when I was on my way to the court. Or while I was speaking or at anything which I was going to say. So, you know, he's he's in tune with, with higher truths or with higher, with with being informed. Of course, he doesn't know uh, the, you know, the, the absolute time of death. Only God only knows that. But, um, you know, these people, they, they're aware of these things.
1: He also knew that either way, it would be a good for him. So it's a continuation of what you just said. He says, it is an intimation of what has happened to me is a good and that those of us who think that death is an evil are an error for the customary sign would surely have opposed me had I been going to evil and not to good.
0: Stay tuned
1: for our next episode. Thank you
0: for listening and we'll see you next time.